Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 309, Valkyrie. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we're bringing in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. On this episode, we're going to talk about a humanoid robot. Humanoid means it walks like a human and kind of looks like a human. Imagine Iron Man, but it's made of metal and electronics and built for a versatile range of functions to best emulate human capabilities with no humans inside. Recently, NASA announced collaborative agreements with companies around the world to utilize NASA expertise for bringing humanoid robots into industry. Why? Well, think of something like an offshore oil rig, for example. When a facility is built to be operated by humans with levers, switches, dials, and doors, but there are no humans there to attend to maintaining a facility, whether it's uncrewed or potentially hazardous, what better capability than a one-stop shop for having a full swath of human capabilities without risking human lives than a robot shaped like a human? Why NASA? Well, who's going to take care of home sweet Martian home when the astronauts are away, knowing that continuous human presence on the Martian surface is likely not immediately achievable after those first boot prints? It's a capability worth exploring and maturing. To help explain Valkyrie, the design, the ambitions of the robot, we have the deputy team lead for Dexterous Robots here at NASA's Johnson Space Center, Evan Lasky. All right, let's get right into it. Evan Lasky, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. Welcome, man. Hey, thanks for having me. The, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, was, I was just thinking about how um, this is, I think, one of the few times we get to work together. I know. <laughs> I, we we were co we were co ops together, yep. and like I remember, like some of our first weeks at, as full time NASA, yep. like like seeing each other. But yeah, our our paths have not crossed professionally so much. <laughs> Um, we just live in different worlds, man. I'm just, I was, I, I assess for a long time. Oh yeah. And you've always been in engineering though, right? Uh, I mean, not obviously going back to co-op days. Um, I, you know, rotated through, uh, flight ops and, um, well, mm -hmm. mission ops at the time. That's right. And, uh, and, but ever since about 2011, I was in, it came to, well, 2010, I came into engineering, uh, and, uh, been there ever since. Yeah. Yeah. You have, um, a history mostly with dexterous. Am I saying that right? Dexterous robotics. Dexterous robotics. Dexterous yep. robotics. So you've been especially there, and and this is nice. We should clarify this for our listeners because our listeners can be more familiar with this because we've had a lot of previous co-ops or pathway interns. You and I are old mm -hmm. enough to still call it co-ops, <laughs> but um, but it's a rotational thing. So you get a lot of opportunities to try different things. And you you did a you did a rotation with the dexterous robotics folks, right? Yeah, so in my co-op time, I came in and I, I first started back in ISS. So this was in the OSO or Operation Support Officer group. So they were really cool because it was a um, a uh, they fix everything on station basically. Yeah, the <laughs> mechanics, the, the mechanics, yeah, effectively. Right. So I got a chance to look at a lot of different systems throughout mm -hmm. the ISS, um, and then I moved over to. Uh, the avionics engineering division mm. and worked a lot on sensor acquisition and stuff. And uh, then I moved over into uh, the, our robotic systems technology branch here. And that's basically where I've been ever since. So I've touched a ton of different uh, projects. Um, Robonaut 2, you may uh, have seen a lot we haven't about before. Do dove too deep into it into uh, into this podcast, but yeah. yeah, it is one of the one of the. If you see it, I think you'll like. And if you're familiar with NASA at all, you'll know it. It exactly. looks like um, like a Boba Fett, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> there there was some inspiration, yes. some artistic inspiration there. Yeah. Um, the uh, a lot of spinoff stuff from that. So mm. worked on bringing some of the technology from the hands to wearable robotics um, with the RoboGlove. That's actually now. Um, been patented, licensed. It's actually a commercial product oh, wow. as well. So the technology transfer has gone through there. So that was really cool to be involved with. Uh, a lot of adapting that to the spacesuit glove. And then um, with uh, Robonaut 2, was able to work through sending uh, that to some of our partners and and work with them, as well as I, I started getting into um, 
project management and uh, and technology development projects uh, specifically yeah. in like the early career initiative projects. So like that was so all related to Dextrous Robotics. So that really set me up well um, for where I'm at now, which is I, I'm the deputy lead for the Dextrous Robotics team here within the robotics technology branch. I want to go into exactly what that means, but to, to, to take a step back to get you to that lead, you've been with the Dextrous Robotics group committed and worked your way up to certain levels of responsibilities. But funny enough, you weren't in the first choice out of the co-op, out of the co-op <laughs> yes, rotation. Yeah. I love that you love to tell this story. I Yeah, well, so I like to uh, to talk that, especially when, pe- when um, interns... Uh, you know, there's a lot of worry sometimes about whether or not, um, especially early on in your career, whether or not you're, uh, you, whether or not you feel good enough or imposter syndrome kind of things. Oh, and yeah, I usually like to like to let them know like the, a little bit of encouragement because I I wasn't. So in the co-op program, then they hire people, um, you know, they hire somewhere between 10 and 20 a semester, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was 21st on their list. <laughs> uh, so uh, somebody actually had to turn down the offer for me to, to to get down here. And so now I've had this almost 15 year career since I started yeah. uh, as a co-op. And, and I've gotten to touch so many different things, mm-hmm. invented things, um, and now have led technology projects, you know. And so it's, it's been really cool to be able to tell that, like, it, you know, everyone has a different path, right? Right. And so I got the opportunity to come here, but there's other folks that have different paths that get them to um, where they end up. And yeah, the fact that I think you're committed to it and you like when you got selected, you're like, it, now you can take on more responsibilities and all the things you've done have been crazy. You said you invented stuff? What did you invent? Well, I mean, with some of the tech dev projects, what's great about doing tech dev yeah. is you get to think about new ways of doing things. and. Okay. Generally, new ways of doing things are novel, and so they're able to be patented, um, and especially ones that are able to be commercialized. So a lot of, I actually, my up to, I think I've got five now. Five um, patents. Yes. Yeah. So it all related to a lot of the robo- RoboGlove um, uh, development. And so that was, what's cool about those is that they're a collaborative and team effort. And so, you know, it's not just me, it's not just uh, them, you know, the team usually comes up with solutions to problems and, you know, we all get to share in that, um, which was really cool. Let's start with RoboGlove to really help us to dive into, let's start with Dexterous Robotics and what, because you're, 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 this is where your deputy lead and, but I want to get a sense of what that is. Mm -hmm. RoboGlove, I feel like is a good example of that. It's right. Cause it's, it's a hybrid with the, it's not necessarily a humanoid robot. It's more of a more dexterous assistance. Is that a good way of, so I'm messing it up. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> no worries. All right, um, all right. Yeah. So dexterous robotics is, um, basically think of any time, uh, generally a robot interacts with the world. Okay. So there are a lot of different robotic archetypes. Um, some that, you know, you might consider a self-driving car, mm-hmm. just a robot on its own, but it's not dexterous. It doesn't, interact with the world, move things around or things like that. Right. And so you can kind of like think of any, uh, dexterous robot as something with an arm, something that manipulates objects in space, Mm -hmm. um, moves them around, you know, rearranges them, builds things, those kind of things. The space station, uh, arm is an example of a somewhat dexterous arm. Cannon arm too? Yes. Dexter or both? Well, both. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, they're different pieces of that, of that puzzle. Right. Right. And so, um, so we're really focused on what, on that part, the, the manipulation aspects of robotics. Hmm. There's a lot of, a lot of groups, um, around NASA that look at other aspects of the problem. Robotics is a lot like saying space flight. There's a lot that goes into it. I see. You know what I mean? So, so each, um, there's sort of specialties in, in, in that domain. And so ours is, is mostly on manipulation related things. Roboglove is unique because it was a uh it's an adaptation of technology we developed for dexterity Mm -hmm. uh so that's um from the robonaut hand the uh the actuation mechanisms and other things that make the hand move we were able to adapt those to a wearable robot Mm -hmm. so in that case the human is the dexterous manipulator and doing uh the operations but what the roboglove was intended to do was um 
solve the problem of repetitive stress injuries. So gripping. Yeah. Okay. So that RSI, repetitive stress injury, um, a lot of effort when you think about it is focused on the repetition. A lot of a lot of us think that that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Generally, it's the stress part of that. So if you're constantly grabbing something and then manipulating it, it's not the repetition that's hurting you, it's the stress. I, I always like to give an example. So, I mean, no one is gonna be able to see this, but uh, make a fist, okay. a loose fist with your left hand, okay. okay, just just kind of the same, and then squeeze as hard as you can with the right. Now start manipulating them around, turn it around. So around. I'm just rotating my just... wrists right now. Yep. Okay. Now tell me what you feel in your right hand, the one that you're gripping. Feel strong and powerful. No, I feel stressed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, especially in my fingers, it, the stress is becoming much more apparent. And then all the way, it starts burning up through your forearm. Yes, right. It's it's going down slowly. Yeah. All of that creates injury. And so okay. your left hand, if you're not straining it, yeah, you can repeat that. I, all day. I, I forgot that this was here. I was yeah. definitely focusing <laughs> on my right hand. Yeah. Yeah, and so that was basically the idea: is can we offload that strain part of it um, to? Uh, to a robot basically that you're wearing yeah. and then you're just dealing with the rep the repetition. Okay, so you're you're still you're still rotating this and mm -hmm. I forgot about my my left arm because it was so I was so relaxed over here. Yeah. But the grip strength is enhanced and supplemented by the robot glove. Exactly. It offloads okay. the stress so that way okay. your repetition doesn't cause injury. Okay. <laughs> Sounds really useful for like, I, I we talk a lot on, on um, this podcast with about spacewalks. We've had a lot of episodes on spacewalks mm -hmm. and the whole gripping thing is huge because in the pressurized glove, that gripping strength, even just subtle movements, you have to have a lot of stress in order to move uh, different things. And so this is, uh, this can be an excellent way to supplement that. But I guess- it, you're thinking beyond because you said you were, there was already some um, technology transfer and stuff into industry, right? Yeah. So actually, there's a commercial product. Um, so this was actually a collaboration with one of our previous um, partners, GM. Ah. Um, and uh, together, we you know we patented those and uh, licensed that to a company. Um, I forget the name off the top of my head. Bioservo, I think, is okay. the name of the company. Okay. Um, and uh, and they've they've brought a product to market for uh, factory floor operations and things like that. It's great. Okay, so factory workers on the assembly line, mm -hmm. repetitive movements, exactly what you're describing. Just a little bit of assistance for them. Exactly. Okay. And since then, we also had uh, a project where we did some. Uh, we took that concept for RoboGlove. You've mentioned spacewalks, mm -hmm. and we did apply it to a spacesuit glove. Um, oh. We actually did uh, circa twenty. 14 to 16 or so. Mm -hmm. We were working um, as part of the high performance EVA glove um, project, um, trying to adapt that technology to a spacesuit glove. Mm -hmm. And we took a different control paradigm with it uh, because our goal was to maintain, you're, you're not just kind of on and off, you're not gripping something or not. You're constantly trying to fight the force of the, the pressure in your gloves. Yes. And so we, um, we changed the paradigm in which we were operating and basically made it like power steering for your fingers. Okay. So we we actually would have uh, a, we would rely on the pressure of the glove to return, to act as return force, but then we would pull what we call to to flex the, the, the glove um, the, by each finger. So we'd pull on your finger as we sensed you moving in the mm -hmm. glove. So we'd sense your finger moving and then start just like power steering as you start turning to the left, it starts assisting you turning to the left and offloads that force. And so vice versa, as you, we sense you relieving, we'll relieve and let the pressure kind of come back. And so we were actually able to offload and see uh, um, some fatigue release um, from, from that. Oh wow, that is, sounds hugely like uh, beneficial, and I think that's this kind of leads us into a nice conversation with what we're eventually going to talk about here was is Valkyrie. Yeah, but let's keep going at still a high level, right? We got to the dexterous part and really helping to define what dexterous means. Mm -hmm. Now, humanoid robots. Let's start yeah. there. Why is NASA playing in the space of humanoid robots? So. The broader question is why why humanoid robots in general? Why do people exactly why yes. why do people want humanoid robots? Mm -hmm. um, the generally what's good about humanoid robots gener uh, generally is you're 
all of our spaces are designed around humans. You know, um, we evolved, of course, over time to have what we have for eyes and ears and hands and whatnot. And we built our buildings, our cars, our spacecraft all around humans, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're roughly human size, you know, they have human sized openings um, and uh, human hand equipped uh, uh, like interfaces. Right. And so generally what's good about humanoids is that you sort of don't have to think about some of those problems because generally if it's a human scale, has human like features, you obviously can, are set up to be able to solve some of those problems. It doesn't solve all the problems, let right. me be clear. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Otherwise, we're talking about like, what that was that one movie, iRobot. It's yeah. just like, they, like, they're just, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole next level. But yeah, I get it. It's like, if we had doors that were super thin and the handle was on the floor, yeah, that's yeah, not be really. It's not designed for humans. It's not really thinking about something convenient. But if but the doors are as wide as they are with the handle where it is, because our hands reach there and we can walk through when we go in. So instead of redesigning a whole environment, you put a humanoid in there. Humanoid can open the door and it's relatively the same function. It's it's built to function in a human built environment. Yeah, I think the the key here is. Uh, it's it doesn't solve all the problems though. You still have a lot of a lot of problems that need to get solved because one of the best things humans have as their tool is not necessarily their hands. It's the brain attached to them, right? Uh -huh. So it so we can solve problems um, whether it be the latches stuck on the door uh, or things like that. Where robots, you have to now handle those kind of things oh. even even simple things like that we we don't have any issues coordinating um with our hands uh like an air hose how you have to pull off pull the depth back on the co the collar yeah and then insert and then let go of the collar yeah that's a really complicated thing to you do with your hand you don't think twice about it mm -hmm. but to basically program a robot to do that still is complicated um, mm. where there's a lot of choices that we could make in, you know, in spacecraft or the things around us, like, um, um, different warehouses, you know, they use barcodes or other things like that to make things easier to track and whatnot. Mm. Doing some of those accommodations for robotics within your systems is actually helps with the, um, with the robot actually performing those tasks because you can start relying on some things. Um, but what's great also is usually if you make things easier to manipulate, they're easier to manipulate for a human too. Aha. <laughs> make an air hose easier to not have that complicated, uh, um, pull back on the sleeve. Yeah. yeah, yeah, You can, you can, uh, it makes it easier for you to also make those. So it's, there's an interesting trade, yeah. especially when you talk about just like there is between any complex system and spacecraft and, you know, how your ecosystem system affects your power system and mm -hmm. things like that. Any complicated system has a lot of interactions. I think this sort of leads nicely into the complication of humanoid robots, right? Because you like what I was what I was talking about at a surface level was just something shaped like a human and fingers, toes, hips. But but one of the things you brought up that's very clear is the smarts, the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, that it's a whole level of complication to program all of the different features of a human, the hands to make all those dexterous movements. So your job is very multi-layered in the fact that you have to think about every intricate part of a design, how they, you know, the feet, the hands, the torso, everything, but then making that all gel and making their, making that robot be able to perform human tasks Sounds like a whole other level of complication. Just the if we were to just just talk about the brain on this episode and like what goes into coding a humanoid robot, I feel like this could be all day. We could be talking all day. Oh, I'm sure we could fill eight hours worth of conversation <laughs> about robotics. Yeah. Um, well, and that, that kind of brings us to the fact that humanoids aren't the only robot archetype that mm. are dexterous. Um, we abstract that a little bit, especially where where NASA's um, potential advantage of having robotics within their um, their architecture uh, for missions is especially human missions, right? They're designed around humans, yep. crew systems. 
Um, so human scale robotics is sort of that zoomed one level up. You don't need a humanoid necessarily to do certain things, right? It has its pros and cons, the complexity of the system, um, and it solves some problems. But manipulation generally is what humans do, right? We don't just sit there um, and pilot a spacecraft with our minds, although that would be cool. That would be cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> the We push buttons, we open doors, we, you know, perform experiments, right? Mm. It's manipulation where... Um, or worse, <laughs> the worst thing is we have to deal with a lot of logistics, right? Mm. Um, and that takes a lot of time and effort on big, on long duration space missions. I mean, think about the logistics just on ISS, all this, all the stuff, the stowage that's on board. Okay, you're talking about when a cargo mission goes up to the space station. Now that cargo has to be unloaded and transferred, documented, mm -hmm. inventoried. That's what you mean by logistics. Exactly. Okay, and so. On something like the ISS, where you're crewed all the time, it's really easy to have the crew deal with that. But on architecturally, where we're interested in exploring is how that fits into surface, the sustainable surface operations on the moon, right? Mm. Um, when we're delivering logistics there, do we need to spend time with EVAs to go grab all the logistics? and bring them back to base just so that way um you know you can now live for your two weeks there uh is or would we rather have them set up for the crew nearby or something like that and that's something where we think robots may be useful uh in these in mission architectures of the future okay yeah, so if you have a mission, so example, you have a mission for two weeks, you mm -hmm. have X number of EVAs that you want to perform. Let's just throw out six. Sure. You want to dedicate, instead of dedicating one or two to logistics and four to science, you can dedicate six to science. Mm -hmm. And then you can just do the logistics one completely robotically. I That would be, in our view, on a great uh, business case for robotics on the I surface, see. right? Okay. Because that allows us, think about how much effort that time, money, resources that mm -hmm. goes into an EVA. And certainly we would never want to replace humans, you know, in yeah. any of these mission architectures. We want to optimize their time, mm. right? Because if, what do those two EVAs cost in amount, the amount of scheduling, the amount of resources just to also get those resources, right? Right. So right. Um, that's that's something where we see a lot of robotics in the future. I mean, you see the um, a, a lot of discussions about ISRU or in-space resource utilization. Yeah. Right? And that's, you know, a lot of those might be rovers or other type of uh, plants. You know, architecturally, it's uh, TBD, but utilizing those resources, getting the logistics. That's where basically human-scale robotics is useful, right? Because mm. we can make sure the crew is doing science, you know, and 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 those mission uh, objectives. And then you have a robot turning dirt into fuel or something like that, or dirt into oxygen. Yeah, or, like or taking one, out the trash. Taking out the trash. Okay, <laughs> yeah. All right, I could see a use for this on Mars. I could see a use for this in my own house. So <laughs> this is, uh, I could see, yeah, any supplementary to, to save me time, to save the crew time, very useful. This is the NASA. This is sort of the why we explore this technology. It is let's just let's just see how we can develop this and how we can better support our crew and the missions. And so you, this is the technology exploration. This is so cool. You get to like that's your your role is really less like. Let me know if I'm simplifying this too much. Is your role is like, hey, let's see how far we can take this. Let's see how far we can push this technology. Let's see how far. Let's see how much we can help NASA and the and humanity here on Earth. Yeah, I mean, our our team, um, especially, is kind of so. I may throw out some jargon here. Okay. All right, in the techno technology readiness level or TRL, um, there's a, a a scale from one to nine, right? And nine being we set footsteps on the moon and one being I have an idea in a, in a, you know, in a lab. Okay. Right. I have some sketches. <laughs> Let me see if I can try this out. Okay. Um, and somewhat sort of in between is where you kind of progress. Oh, I've verified. I understand the concept. I've, um, 
I've tested it out. I've made a prototype of a thing that uses that concept, you know, et cetera. Um, and we play in that basically that TRLs three to six. So what that means is basically things that are just coming out of research in universities. And then we do those proof of concepts and we do the integration of maybe multiple ideas uh, within that lower TRL scale. And we put them together and we do some of those the first time. And then we go all the way up to basically six or seven where you're actually taking that concept and getting it into a relevant environment. For example, with Robonaut, um, we actually were able to launch um, a torso uh, up to the International Space Station mm -hmm. on STS-133. And uh, then in 2014, we added legs to it. Um, and we were able to basically get some of that technology in the torso, for example, um, up to uh, TRL-7, basically. Uh, mm. So the first time we were, we were able to do dexterous manipulation with uh, with some of the items uh, and running that software in space. So that's what the, that seven is. Awesome. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a, a great opportunity to do that. And so some of our work stems all the way down to research, all the way up to early space flight technology demonstrations. Okay. And so um, basically in terms of, you know, you talked about, you asked me earlier a little bit about how much through that scale, all the things that go into robotics. Mm -hmm. And so we have tested, our team has worked with different, uh, what we call end effectors or tools um, that uh, think about them as hands, different types of hands, mm. whether they're two fingered, five fingered, like human hands or somewhere in between. Mm. Um, we've also looked at the manipulator controls themselves. Uh, how you move an arm in space, um, in 3D space, that is. And uh, also how you then create what we call uh, behaviors. So those are the little building blocks of things that you would do. It's kind of like little instructions you might tell uh, tell your own brain to do, like identify where the water bottle is. And then when I know where the water bottle is, okay, now grab the water bottle. Now open the lid. Now those are each individual behaviors oh. that you can then start planning bigger and bigger things out of. And so that sort of software level of integration and testing is where we're actually doing a lot of our work right now huh. is, is those, those kind of behaviors. Okay. So you've done a lot. What you're saying is you've done a lot of the work to, to feel like what's the best hand and then design that test that now it's really all the program of, and I'm, and I'm, you know, on the, on the podcast, I am now grabbing my water bottle. I am doing all of those things. And to me, it's one fluid motion, right? As a human who has done this countless number of times, but you're going into each intricate step now and trying to make that more fluid, better, think about all the risks of what happens if you bump the table, how does the hand reset and try again or something like that. That's really where a lot of your work is. Exactly. Okay. So, so, so right now we're doing a lot of that behavioral generation for a very, uh, a relatively simple um, arm when we, when we consider the complexity of a humanoid. Mm. Uh, so we're actually able to do that within the context of, uh, of space missions and that kind of thing with, with prototypes and other things like that and concepts of what an inside of a vehicle might look like. Yeah. That's one of the, the big efforts we're, we're working on uh, within that, that NASA context. Okay. So, of course, the question is where does Valkyrie fit into that? Oh, that was, you are perfect at the, that was exactly my next segue was let's go into Valkyrie. Okay. So we're talking about dexterous robots. We talked about Robonaut 2 and then these are, these are other humanoid robots. The reason that we're, you know, the title of this episode is Valkyrie. This is one of the robots you guys are working on. And there's a lot of cool stuff that has been happening recently. Just 2023. We've had a couple of announcements on some uh, progress and partnerships you guys have been making. Let's start high level though. We've been talking dexterous robotics, human humanoid robots. What's Valkyrie? So Valkyrie, the history of Valkyrie. Um, so she came out of the uh, DARPA Robotics Challenge. So 
the DARPA robotics challenge at the at the time was in response to the Fukushima disaster um, in from the tsunami in Japan. Okay. Uh, so Nucle- there were, nuclear plant. Exactly. Okay. And so out of that, DARPA said, "How can we solve this instead of having people go in to these kind of disasters? Can we solve this with robotics?" And so they created this challenge in uh, roughly 2013. I can't remember exactly the year. Um, and uh, Valkyrie was basically our entrant to that. We designed and built her and roughly uh, to the form she is mostly today, 12 to 18 months. That included all the hardware, all of the the system design, all of the software as well. Wow. Um, there was a lot of work that went into went went into beginning um, beginning that, and um, so we performed in the Dexter uh, in the DARPA Robotics Challenge, and we uh, have since been doing various partnerships with uh, other uh, researchers and other things like that, and have really used her as a research platform. Mm-hmm. So we we actually really like to bring in um, Instagrow or. NASA Space Technology Graduate Research Opportunity students. Of course, it's an acronym. I, I mean, the fact that it's an acronym you can say is is <laughs> it, an actual acronym, right? It's, it's impressive, yeah. It's, it's pretty good. <laughs> um, we actually have, uh, because we play in that TRL3 space, mm. you know, it's a great opportunity to bring uh, researchers in and use Valkyrie or other systems we have around as a platform for advancing the research side of robotics, right? Hmm. In addition, we've been working on uh, various partnerships with, uh, for example, um, IHMC, uh, which is out of Pensacola, uh, Florida. Uh, They have worked with our, um, they're basically uh, who has implemented their walking controller, uh, which is what you need for a humanoid to walk around. they have implemented that on Valkyrie, and that's basically our core whole body, we call it controller, that we use as the core of, of um, the robot. Um, so it's been a really you know beneficial relationship over the years, and they've got you know 25 years of experience in walking algorithms and other, well, I think about 25 is up closer to 30 at this point. And, and oh yeah, because that was at the time, right? I was, yeah, I was in circa 2015 or so. So yeah, I you know that's one of the critical components. And so, what have we been up to with her lately? Uh, the we've been trying out different end effectors. So we designed and built to the technology and the the research of the time uh, a a hand um, that was more robust than Robonaut's hand because it was meant for the um, the the Fukushima kind of uh, level of manipulating valves and you know, other things like that you might have to do to shut down or react to a nuclear plant. Mm-hmm. And uh, we developed a lot of behavioral technologies and other things like that that have spurred a lot of development. Um, we'll throw out a, a robotics buzzword of affordance templates. <laughs> I won't go into that here. That's a whole episode. <laughs> okay. But that that was around the same time frame. Like that came out of research. And, um, and basically that having that platform now allows us to actually develop more recently sort of situational awareness for the operator. We actually now control Valkyrie most of the time through VR, through a VR headset. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so what's really cool now is you put this VR headset on, you got your hand controllers, and you see through her eyes. And because she's humanoid, this is one of those advantages, kind of all understand how a human's supposed to move. Yes. Right? So it makes it a lot easier to teleoperate. Um, so we, what we do is we can actually use the human executive, that human brain mm-hmm. that we were talking about before, and then we can try out different things with the robot. And then we can find out different methods and then figure out how we might, hmm, how could we make this easier for, a, for the robot to do or for a human to do and how can we be? How can we encode those behaviors? How can we create uh, driver assist tools for a, a human operator of a robot, or other things like that? So that's kind of a lot of what we've been doing with Valkyrie as of late. 
Awesome. If you ever need a brain to sit in and teleoperate a humanoid robot and it needs to be a lower fidelity brain, you got one right here. Um, that this is awesome. So, um, you are, it is really comes down to, so you mentioned the technology development, whatever, 10 years ago, 2013 is 10 years ago. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I think we were saying five. It's just like, oh, wait. Yeah, I think uh, I think more time has gone than we probably think. Yeah. But that's I mean, that's a, that's a decade. When you say swapping out an end effector, let me let me go back on this swapping sure. out an end effector. You mean removing a hand and gauntlet and putting a new one on? Is that basically? OK, yeah. yeah. OK, um, the uh, so in in robotics, we generally talk about the end effector or use it or use the term tool. Yeah, yeah. Um, because in especially where most robotics is in automating of manufacturing and other things like that, right? Mm -hmm. How it comes into industry. So you generally have some sort of tool on the end. Mm -hmm. In our case, it's usually general purpose manipulation or something similar to that, mm -hmm. where you have a hand-like object of some kind, whether it be two fingers, three, a whole five fingers, you know, right? Uh, posable thumbs. <laughs> those things. <laughs> those things. Those things that are useful. Um, those are all we can we can kind of talk about those as end effectors or or tools you know we use the, the term so w what we do now is kind of look at the technology in 2013 and the uh, even just the sensor technology that's in valkyrie uh for sensing effectively touch mm -hmm. that was based on a paper out of 2012 circa 2012 right mm. and we when we look out there now uh a lot of industry has kind of caught up with that technology right there's now you've seen boston dynamics um you know yeah the robot that does the flips exactly yeah yeah so that's hydraulically operated so in the future we look to see more electrically operated i mean you think about all the things that go into building something for the moon or something like that in the future generally all our robots are electrically operated our vehicles for that are you know have batteries and are electrically operated yeah you know aside from the 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 rocket on the end um of course <laughs> so you know there's others that have brought things to mar to to market the how many different robot quadrupeds are out there mm -hmm. quadrupeds being like the robot dogs dogs i was yeah. about to say dogs yep 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 <laughs> um and there's others that have brought humanoid like things to to bear in fact um ihmc's partner has like has built their own uh humanoid like robot so what's interesting about that is we've looked at actually the prosthetics industry industry that prosthetics industry has been looking at how to give people more uh dexterity again dexterous robotics team right, right. uh and they found uh we actually uh found a commercial product that is an order of magnitude cheaper than the bill of materials of a valkyrie hand <laughs> interesting but it's commercially available wow uh and we were able to basically buy one and put it on valkyrie and see how it performed let's try it a commercial off the shelf hand <laughs> yes exactly exactly <laughs> cool it's pretty great five fingers and everything yeah uh, and coincidentally uses a lot of the same sensor technology from that same 2012 paper oh wonderful so it's really cool to see that kind of come along that's what happens in 10 years yeah the technology not only does the technology progress but it becomes more accessible and affordable right but but just by paving the way right now you can now have these options of, yeah. of, oh, that is amazing. I'm really excited to see what the next 10 years looks like <laughs> for robotics, especially uh, human scale robotics, whether it be humanoids or, you know, robotics for the, the lunar surface. Right. And I'm really excited to see how industry advances that and steps up as you said well. 2011 you got here full-time and joined the uh dexterous robotics group or was it 2013 it was 2011 as a i was a co-op still at the time you were a co-op still at the time so i mean even then because that was when you were seeing it timestamp 2011 to 2023 that progression if you check if you take that as a whole snapshot has it been crazy growth that that makes you excited for the future Oh yeah, yes. absolutely. I mean, you look at how many things are coming online from from different different groups. I mean, you think back to 2011, um, 
and my memory in years may be failing me, but you look <laughs> at the the quadrupeds that are out there. Dogs. Like the dogs, again, quad, quadrupeds. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not going to do the, I'm not going to say the, the fancy term. I'm going to say the robo dog. Man. <laughs> the quadrupeds, okay. For, for, for those following along, quadra for... All right, Ted all right. Legs. It's a little higher fidelity than that, Evan. Come on. <laughs> all right. So, all right, so the quadrupeds, yes. Yes. Um, so in any case, like, I remember seeing those. Uh, you know, we've all seen those YouTube videos. Mm, mm-hmm. And mind you, 2011 is after YouTube started. <laughs> so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see see those and where they came from then to they're on the, on the market. And people are implementing them in... V- so many different places, um, you know, different uh, environments like industrial environments, like uh, construction environments, like uh, mm. um, things like that. And um, you now seeing that with space robotics and seeing where that'll go and seeing where uh, where humanoids will go. Mm-hmm. You know, we we had that. We saw that with the hands. But we've also found that with the robot itself. Okay. So uh, in we had a, a partnership uh, relatively recently where we had started looking at what it would take to build a newer version. Take all the lessons learned from Valkyrie and try to solve those, right? Okay. And when we had started doing that we started addressing some of the limitations dealing with the requirements and figuring out how we would solve the the problems uh and then in in around i think it was the end of 2021 uh we met up with one of the people that actually as a sbir small business innovative research so this is a government-wide program um to spur to encourage small businesses to partner with the federal government to no to build technologies that the government wants oh right to have small businesses do that for us and then then they can take that and use it for a commercial product cool cool and then we uh, ideally at the other end of it it's something nasa wanted and nasa can now buy right yes um so in around 2016 i said we were using it for for those research things Mm -hmm. um one company was uh, had a small business innovative research phase one mm-hmm. with us, and we got to talking with them again. And sounds and it turned out they were doing a lot of the same things we were going to do. They were like, "Hey, we really want to make humanoid robots that don't just dance and flip, that perform uh, tasks in an industrial settings and." Very similar settings to what you might see in spaceflight. Mm. Now, of course, space and lunar creates a whole other dimensional complexity of dust and vacuum and other things like that. Yes. But they're like, we really think um, we can make uh, a product out of a humanoid robot that can perform uh, tasks at a human scale, right? Wow. So we started talking with them. Um, and, uh, we were able to, basically we saw that and we decided to leverage the SBIR program to start working with them, developing requirements for what that might look like, you know, infusing some of the lessons learned we had with Valkyrie, um, on operating her over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, recently they have debuted their, uh, their robot. So okay. you can actually find um, find that uh, what they've been working on at their their website. The company's called Eptronic. Okay, and we've been working with them uh, since since then, um, and we look forward to you know working with them in the future. Wow. So um, beyond you know beyond this relationship, the, just kind of you, you've so, sort of been addressing this throughout our conversation, but I just sort of wanted to bring everything together um, and just. M- talk about the benefit of not just kind of working on um, a humanoid robot in a quote-unquote bubble, mm-hmm. but to look at industry and information share and learn off of each other. Do you find that these partnerships help to accelerate the technology as a whole, in a sense? 
Absolutely. Very I, much. Yeah. Our team really gets a lot out of um, advancing that. Right. Mm-hmm. So NASA NASA gets these te- these technologies advanced through, you know, universities and what have you. And really, we can provide and our team provides that that link to, to NASA. You know, we actually serve as a lot of usually technical monitors within those are that's the the term for uh, people assigned to keep tabs on the small on the SBIRs technical monitors okay yeah. how you like checking in how you doing kind of thing yeah i mean it's basically a relationship that allows them to ta- you know ask us questions and we make sure you know oh okay yeah, okay yeah. So, a point up almost like a nasa point of, nasa point of contact for anything exactly. okay and so we've actually um had uh one recently with um another company uh, picnic uh, mm-hmm. robotics and they're um we're actually we're using their uh, product now in trying to um, do motion planning and those behaviors that we've been talking about. So how do we encode behaviors? So we'd done previous research on how we would might do that. Um, We we actually built a tool that's open source called task force that actually descended from the Valkyrie DARPA robotics challenge. Oh, how about that? Yeah. So that's, that's been out there and some of the folks, um, within picnic are familiar with that as well and they've built now a commercial product that effectively uh uh, tries to put together behaviors and make a good user interface for um for them and so Mm. we've we've looked at that as an interesting model because their approach is open core what does that mean so they're building on open source tools that they contribute to and then they layer their their commercial secret sauce on top, right? So they mm-hmm. sell a product, but they still improve these open source tools that are beneficial to everybody. And that's something like for us too, we open sourced task force and, and other mm-hmm. things like that. And we really hope that that bring those kind of things bring up the whole technology development. It shows how that technology can advance and then percolate. Yeah. Right across a robotics community, and then come back around to companies building something for spaceflight. Okay, yeah. so yeah, so you're doing quite a bit there, and it sounds like the brains are a big part of it. The the coding, the behaviors, being the the pick up the water bottle and drink it sort of <laughs> behavior, those sorts of things. No reason you want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Just getting thirsty, talking, having this yeah this conversation. Um, Another one that I thought was interesting was I saw this one recently with Woodside and you got to actually go to Australia. What's, what's this partnership? Yeah. So, um, this partnership, you know, we mentioned, uh, earlier the sort of discussion about all the different places that people are deploying robotics within, uh, their, especially in dangerous environments. They're really interested in, um, whenever you have, a person in a dangerous environment, you, the question is, how can I minimize the risk for that person? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, space flight's always going to be inherently dangerous. Right. Um, but it, and, and it, it classifies as a dangerous environment. Right. Right. Um, similar dangerous environments might be oil and gas or petroleum infrastructure. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're processing something like natural gas, you're around a lot of flammable stuff mm-hmm. all the time right and there's a lot that goes into keeping those kind of facilities safe mm-hmm. just like a lot goes into keeping uh spacecraft and ecosystems alive and that kind of thing the question is uh how do you deploy robotics within those missions and those architectures and they're very similar to deploying them to an oil and gas facility as it might be to potentially deploying them within mission architectures. So both NASA and in in this case, Woodside, were really interested, Woodside interested in deploying robotics. How do we get, how do we deploy those in those mission architectures? How can we integrate, you know, autonomy in various ways into how we operate? And we're also interested in that kind of thing. So we actually had a, initial space act agreement with uh woodside 
from about 2017 to 2022. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of centered around uh, cognitive robotics, right? How do we link um, the manipulation things with the system interface, right? Mm -hmm. So they they have their own system sort of mission control interface and that kind of thing for their plants. How do we put robotics in, in into that kind of thing? How do we deploy them? Okay. Um, so I was actually able to, um, to, as part of that, they, they actually um, were looking at Robonaut and kind of just the manipulation aspect of it. And I was actually able to go down there to loan them uh, Robonaut 2. Um, we actually... Uh, loaned them one for uh, the past few years, as well as I was able to sort of second into their um, into their group for like three months in 2018. Yeah, you went to Perth, Australia. Yep, the Woodside yeah. is is in Perth, um, Perth. If I get my pronunciation <laughs> right, um, the Australians are probably <laughs> either judging yeah. or not. Right. Um, so I was able to kind of stay with them for for three months and and work with them on their their problems and and kind of take their lessons learned things that we learned operating those robots in those environments and then take them back to what we were doing in task um, and behaviors and how we constructed them and how those link you know together and benefit from those lessons learned. So it's a really unique way to get before we go to deploy things in space to get experience on how those things integrate. Yeah. So um, we recently, um, I say recently, it's been over a year now, <laughs> uh, signed a new space act agreement with them um, because the same alignment was still there. And uh, part of that centered around, okay, so now we've kind of started doing deploying robotics to this how can we start adding some of those mobility and manipulation and, and things like that and get prepared for that 10 years down the road mm -hmm. when we've got humanoid robots taking out our trash at home, right? <laughs> how can we make them do things on, on a, on a dangerous, in a dangerous environment? How do we deploy them? And so that's kind of where Valkyrie steps in. Okay, here's what um, it takes to operate and deploy uh, a Valkyrie, um, mm. you know, that kind of thing. And now Valkyrie is never going to go to a oil and gas plant itself. It is a very tethered research platform um, right. with its own limitations, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, but this gives folks at um, Woodside the opportunity to kind of learn that paradigm. Yeah. And it gives us the opportunity to get more lessons learned with respect to how you, how you um, deploy those. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's almost like a jump start a jump in progress a little mm -hmm. bit just by having that experience and kind of working together, you can come back with lessons learned in a short three month time period. Then if you were to try to maybe do it on your own, just those partnerships that kind of accelerate NASA, accelerate the business. We talked about those small business partnerships and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So it's all, it's all just accelerating progress. So you can get to that 10 years. That's, that is the goal. So we, you know, um, what, uh, what came out in in uh, recently was we actually visited uh, in March to deliver or loan them a Valkyrie unit for them to to try and operate in their lab. Okay. So was able to just more most recently go, um, and that's what you know what story was on the NASA website recently. Yeah. About that, um, uh, which was a, a great experience. We did go up to their facility, you know, and see what kind of things. Um, just like spending time on EVAs uh, just for logistics um, is kind of a good opportunity to, to optimize cruise time. Uh, there, you know, there's a lot of dangerous environments which are way too hot or way too, you know, dangerous mm. to be in that they do a lot of work to deal with, um, with those and make sure people are safe and their thought is it would be nice if robots could do that. Mm -hmm. And then we can do the, for lack of a better word, important things. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, so that that's the kind of thing where we're aligned in that, that regard. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think that that's, you know, the, the, we hope that, um, that the lessons that we can learn through working with them, uh, with Valkyrie, 
uh, give us more in, better insight into what other problems we might need to solve between here and that 10-year time horizon. When you think of um, Valkyrie's legacy, because I think it's I think the theme that you mentioned that's pretty important is, and we see this a lot, is you know you want to look at a Valkyrie, you want to look at this really cool looking robot, be like, we're just going to continue to improve that robot, and then that robot is going to be ready to ship out. But you just said that Valkyrie is in and of itself is a technology demonstration. And whatever does end up solving those needs for whatever it may be in Woodside for, for dealing with the dangerous environment in oil rig or in, in Aptronic for whatever they're, they're going to be um, uh, doing to solve some sort of business need, some, some, some issue or whatever ends up on the moon or Mars, you know, is going to be, it's, it's going to be its own thing. But at the end of the day, what do you hope the legacy of Valkyrie is? Uh, like looking back and spending so much time and effort and passion on this particular project? Well, um, it's an interesting question. You know, at the end of the day, I look, as I said, and I look really, I look forward to seeing what 10 years from now we have yeah. available, right? And um, Valkyrie is a stepping stone to that. Mm -hmm. It's just one robot, you know, and we require a lot of different robots and uh as i said different archetypes to really explore how we can solve those human scale problems humanoids are one of them valkyrie's got already a storied history we've got a lot of people that that have referenced it over the years mm -hmm. and um provides a lot of inspiration for how others um you know kind of view robotics and that kind of thing and so uh, I, I feel like its legacy has has sort of already been written. It's 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 kind of pushed that bound That's that boundary nice. forward, and um, you know the next stage of of humanoid robots and the technologies that stem from them and uh, other manipulation. You know we're going to be leveraging those things for uh, for years to come, right? Mm -hmm. um, seeing things. It's kind of neat having, you know, 10 years on seeing things like uh, Ross or the robotic operating system uh, basically was a concept that came out of a company um, or organization, Willow Garage, mm -hmm. about how can we make it easier for uh, for all this software development for robotics to not be bespoke to just one robot and just iterate on that robot forever mm. and share that technology. And it exploded the uh, research in robotics and the leveraging and integration of each other's um, software to enable the software to be where it is today. And what's, what's interesting is that recently there's been an uptick of interest in space robotics. And so there's been, for example, there was a, uh, there was an ACO or an announcement of collaborative opportunity with NASA that actually just wrapped up um, where Blue Origin uh, and Open Robotics, the company that maintains Ross now, um, although they've now been bought by Intrinsic or they're, they've been bought by Google. Intrinsic is the, the company name now. Um, okay. And, uh, but Open Robotics still is the open source version of it. Um, so Blue Origin and Open Robotics had this um, collaborative uh, relationship with NASA that started developing a space ROS. So the idea being to try to start layering on top the things that they need to be able to bring robotic technology that is built for the ground and make it a lot easier for people to bring that forward and lower the barrier to entry to taking um, software written for robots here on the ground that's, you know, doing those backflips. Mm -hmm. It would be a shame if you had to rewrite all that software uh, to be flight ready. And how, how can we make that easier and that's what the what space ross has been looking at at doing and mm -hmm. so um i'm excited to see how that sort of fits in with 
with all the all the robotics um, that is happening because then all that starts to be able to get transferred to all the stuff we've been doing on the ground makes it a lot easier to transfer that to space mm. transfer that to future missions uh, onto the lunar surface onto Mars a lot easier when you don't have to rewrite your very complicated behavioral systems and yes like that's that. huge yeah. let, your, let, let me let me give you an example and you let me know if, if I'm interpreting this right the idea of let's just say backflip on earth how much mm-hmm. time and effort it's taken to make sure that that goes well not to start from scratch when you want to do that on the moon in one sixth gravity that's what you're saying. You're saying making it easier to translate the earthbound behaviors to the spacebound behaviors. So there's that's part of it. Part of it, okay. It's but also the software underneath it. So in mm-hmm. order to make behaviors work, you, it's like there's an operating system underneath, right? Sure. Just like although Ross isn't an operating system, it's sort of like that, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine you built this fancy software on Windows that makes the robot. Mm-hmm backflip it would certainly um suck to have to <laughs> have to rewrite that for Start linux over. or right. mac yeah. right yeah yeah <laughs> so it'd be nice to have and so the idea behind space ross was how can we make that transition easier very right? cool so we can go from a ground level of software development we just got the thing working for you know the first time mm-hmm. to okay now we have to make sure that it works in space every time and doesn't crash how can we make that simpler Interesting. Evan, last question. And I think it's been a theme, an underlying theme through much of this conversation, but I definitely want to hear your perspective on this because I think you might understand it more than most is when we talk about exploring space and solving these issues for spaceflight needs, uh, remote operation and making sure that we have, you know, like a moon habitat taken care of when humans are not there, supplementing their work day and doing, you know, moving some cargo while they're off doing very important science. When we think about those needs and the marriage of investigating and trying to solve the problems to meet those needs, and the needs of us earthbound citizens here on the ground and what robotics can do to solve that and how the relationship of solving problems in space helps us on earth. When you try to capture all of that and say, this is why spaceflight is important because it benefits all of us. How do you usually try to capture that? Well, I'll say that that is actually one of the one of the most important things I feel like with NASA investing when they can in advancing robotics, Mm. because it's just like everything. I mean, we've, we've talked about how RoboGlove and a spacesuit RoboGlove before, Mm -hmm. right. They've not been commercialized right onto into something that can assist in uh, relieving stress injuries from people. You know, that's not something you would have thought of when we were, building a caretaker robot concept that was R2, right? So it's really hard to say how much until years on, how much this, um, how much you've influenced sort of life on here on earth. Hmm. But there's no denying that we do. Like throughout all of the things that NASA has done throughout spaceflight, throughout robotics, um, those items those technologies make their way out and percolate. And then you don't know now how one idea might spark something completely um, new, you know, 10 years from now. So though we never can know kind of like how much we've influenced life here on the ground, uh, you know, we try to measure that and that kind of thing. We don't know at the time how much we're going to. You do your best, you put one foot in front of the other, and then you look back and you see, oh, I think, you know, it turns out a lot of this work ended up benefiting. Whether it was, you know, you didn't really have this grand plan of working with all these different companies and and having these relationships and putting out open source information only for people to build on top of that and share that information with one another to build up the whole robotics industry. It's hard to see at the time. You maybe have an idea, but to see how much has progressed is it's it's kind of like the approach is just keep keep doing it keep putting one foot in fr- foot in front of the other because you know i guess that's part of the goal here yeah i mean it's I, honestly that is one of the things that personally motivates me a lot yeah as the the work that we do here at nasa mm-hmm. you know 
across everything that we do, which is extremely varied, right? Um, all the way from ISS to flight research to robotics, you know, is when I look back, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, 30 years from now when I retire or what have you, it'll be really cool to see where any of the technology my hands got to touch has gone, you know, because there's no knowing right now where that's going to go. But I'm sure I'm going to be really, really happy when I get there. <laughs> Evan, that's the perfect place to end this conversation. Evan Lasky, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast and sharing your po your passion for robotics that has influenced you know, much of what we do here at NASA, but also the economy and, and places around the world. Thanks. Thanks for coming on and sharing what you do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's good to finally, again, cross, uh, cross paths professionally. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We'll meet again in 10 years. And you can tell me, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> tell you how we do it. Let's yeah. mark the calendar Let's now. Let's mark it. Yes. Awesome. All right. Take care, Evan. All right. Thanks, Gary. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I had a blast talking with Evan Lasky today about humanoid robots. Really learned a lot, and I hope you did too. You can check out nasa.gov for the latest. We mentioned a couple of the awards and partnerships that have been mentioned, and you can check them all out at that website. You can also listen to any of our NASA podcasts, the full collection at nasa.gov slash podcast. That's where you can find us. Houston, we have a podcast, and listen to any of our episodes in no particular order. If you want to talk to us, we're on social media. We're on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, X, Instagram, you can use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded September 8th, 2023. Thanks to Will Flato, Justin Herring, Dane Turner, Abby Graff, Jane Jennings, and Rebecca Wicks. And of course, thanks again to Evan Lasky for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you are listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.